Hello from Austin and welcome to episode 58 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. Bobby, as I predicted, the Patriots won the Super Bowl. <laughs> I'm trying to remember. Did you you had a score? What was your score? It wasn't. It, yeah, it, it was, wasn't that one. It was, it was like 37-21. I think was my. Yeah, prediction. And I think I predicted uh, Patriots by eleven. So uh, once more, demonstrating you're not listening to this for the football commentary. But but I do, well, I'm not listening to Chris Collinsworth for the football commentary either. So I think we need to have at the close of today's episode a little <laughs> a little mini super, uh, Super Bowl review and uh, perhaps focusing on on the uh, commercials, of the halftime show, and why Chris Collinsworth should never call a major sporting event again in his life. I wouldn't go that far. Like, I wouldn't give him the death penalty on that. But um, I do think that, well, let's save it for later. <laughs> what what should we be talking about today? Well, you know, it's not like there's anything happening in the land of national security law. Oh, wait. Yes, there is. Treason! Treason. It's back. It's better than ever. Apparently, <laughs> I'm committing it right now because I'm not clapping. All right. So we will talk about the treason business. Uh, <laughs> and then inevitably... There's apparently still some stuff about this memo. There's there's a memo out there, so we'll talk about memo part D. Although I will say that our, our hashtag memo, and I say our, I'm trying to our, take credit yeah. for your idea. No, 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 it's a, a team um, operation. I, I think it actually did, did quite well. We did not, it was not bad for a completely <laughs> half-baked hashtag. Um, and if the memo controversy is about nothing so much as what you can accomplish with, with a half-baked hashtag. hashtag. Uh, yeah. I don't think it was half-baked. Yeah, um, actually it wasn't half-baked, it was fully baked right. and, and bot-baked, yes. as it were. All right, so we've got, we've got let's see, we've got some treason, we've got a little bit of light treason, Right, we've got um, we've got some more meh mo. Um, some interesting news over the weekend in Guantanamo land. Harvey Rishikoff, the convening authority of the military commissions, was fired, and Gary Brown, legal advisor, fired with him. So we'll That's talk about yeah. You know, we'll, we'll kind of review that story and just talk about some of the associated issues. And, and I mean, Bobby, I, I, correct me if I'm wrong. I, in any other year, right? I feel like this would have been a really big, like you know, New York Times worthy type story. I. I I think certainly it is worthy of Times coverage. I would say that the title, Convening Authority, yeah. has this sort of obscuring, like no and really kind of, it kind of sounds boring, it sounds mm-hmm. administrative. So I don't think the significance of it is apparent to, to well, indeed, and it might, And it may depend, as we'll talk about, on exactly why these guys were, were given the, the, the heave-ho. I'm ready for some rank speculation. How about you? <laughs> um, I mean, what else? Do, <laughs> why, why do we have this podcast if not for rank speculation? Touche. Um, and finally, speaking of rank speculation, also Guantanamo-ish related, we have the, the piece of news that totally got lost on Friday, even in our emergency podcast, um, the government filing its notice of appeal in Doe versus Mattis, the case of the unnamed U.S. citizen still being held in Iraq, um, objecting to the district court's ruling that the government provide Mattis and his lawyers with 72 hours notice before transferring him to a third-party country. Okay, so we've got four good, solid topics there. Uh, Let's start with treason! Do we have to? All right, so I I think I want to read the full quote here. So President Trump was in Cincinnati uh, yesterday, and and I'm going to read now from what he said. He, where, he's where, where he was touting the stock market. Oh wait, no, not it was the not market. the stock market. No, this week it's not the stock market. We should start including our stock tips on this show. What stock? <laughs> My stock tips are are clearly not working. <laughs> sell Mortimer, sell. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that is 
There is our first excellent there you pop culture go. reference of the day. There you go. Um, okay, so he he was he was speaking uh, to an audience and talking about uh, reviewing the State of the Union. He was applauding himself for having uh, gotten high marks. The best State of the Union ever. Well, he was he was then kind of turning and, and talking about uh, the Democrats and how he'd look over there and they weren't clapping, et cetera. And, that, and that's that's new, right? We've never had a State of the Union where members of the opposition party didn't clap for the president's policy initiatives or, or uh, shout out something like "You lie." That doesn't happen. Uh, no. Okay, so here's here's the quote. You're up there. You've got half the room going totally crazy, wild. They loved everything. <laughs> they want to do something great for our country. And you have the other side, even on positive news, really positive news like that. They were like death and un-American. Un-American. Somebody said treasonous. I mean, yeah, I guess why not? Parentheses. Laughter. Uh, close parentheses. Can we call that treason? Why not? Parentheses, applause, close parentheses. I mean, they certainly didn't seem to love our country very much. Uh, now, Steve, before <laughs> before you begin, before I got the aneurysm. yeah, before your head explodes, uh, too so late. This was this was obviously seized upon immediately, and and it bears emphasizing that I I have no doubt that nothing would delight Donald Trump more than knowing that a couple of law professors are sitting here wringing our hands about him casually throwing around treason. Um, a lot of the immediate commentary seized on this and said, and the framing was, it, the president says it's treason not to clap for him. Uh, it, in slight fairness, what, he, what he's saying, <laughs> he, he's making in some ways a, a much more disturbing le- and less comical claim. Indeed. Um, and it's easy to kind of laugh it off at a certain level if it's just like... Like, 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 hey. the, like the press secretary has tried to. Right, indeed. And, and so there is that sort of like, hey, let's... Yeah, it's just Trump being Trump. It's sort of like the the Manny type uh, explanation. That's just Trump being Trump. You got to take it with a grain of salt. Don't take it seriously. Manny um, being Manny. And of course, I know we're going to talk about it is quite serious because it goes to the the, the ongoing uh, degradation of of the dignity of the office and 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 uh, erosion. And I mean erosion in almost that geophysical sense. They just granular chipping away at, at norms. But in fairness, he wasn't saying it. These guys were engaging in treason because they weren't clapping for me. He's equating their silence with rejection of what he has defined as good for America or what is good and saying it's effectively treasonous. Uh, he's, he's suggesting that these are people who don't want what's good for America. They want what's best for themselves, not what's best for America, which is ironic. <laughs> That's I rich. Think. That's rich. Um, all right. Unlike Trump. So having framed – well, I don't know. He's rich now. Okay. Um, Having framed it that way, is should we just let this go? We're playing into his hands, or or sh- is this a moment that bears some scrutiny? So I, I I think I think it bears scrutiny not for the obvious reason, right? So the obvious reason is the president has said something deeply disturbing and has once again proven that he gets all of his you know druthers these days from saying things that are incredibly divisive and and in many ways un-American. Fine, not news, whatever. Um, I do think that it is a useful inflection point to remind everyone of why there's a treason clause in the Constitution, why treason is the only crime defined in the Constitution, and why it is defined so narrowly so that it even excludes, for example, colluding with a foreign government to affect the results of an election. Right, which has been my you know bugaboo on Twitter for like the last year. Right, right. You've you've been very active whenever people have criticized the administration, calling it treasonous uh, to have done whatever happened with Russia. You've been quick to point out that whatever else you want to call it, don't use the treason word. And the reason, and and so and this is all I want to say, right? And the reason why I was such a you know negative Nancy, right, about all of that. Um, Isn't that what Trump calls Nancy Pelosi? Is it? 
Well, I mean, no, Adam I'm kidding. Is, I'm just imagining Adam, Adam Schiff is little, right? Little oh, Adam yeah. Schiff. Um, so listen, yeah, that's the, kind of disappointing, actually. That, is that, that's, that's the best you could do, got. right? Um, that one. I would take that as a badge of pride. If the best thing Trump could say about me was little, well, especially if he said it about me, since I'm <laughs> six foot eight. Okay. Um, so, so the 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 reason why I was so obstinate and provoked a lot of criticism from the left, right, for sort of yelling at people who were calling the Russia collusion thing potentially treasonous, is for exactly this moment. Right, because if you start diluting the meaning of treason, you lose sight of what the drafters of the Constitution and the founders of our country were worried about vis-a-vis treason, which was the use by the king of treason to go after political opponents. Right, that if you doubted the political, if you mm-hmm. if you opposed the king's policies, if you worked against his agenda, you were committing treason. The whole reason why there's a treason clause in the Constitution is to prevent politicizing treason, which is exactly what, however you take the president's remarks, he was doing. Oh, absolutely. Now, what was the old phrase, compassing the demise of the king or compassing ill will towards the king yeah. or the crown? And, and you still have today, I mean, there are some countries that still have les majest laws, mm-hmm. right, where speaking ill of the king is itself a crime. Right, exactly. Oh, how somebody would like that. Um, happily, well, right. happily, that is not our law and that's not our tradition. But the point is just that, right, that there's that, that so, so it's not just that it isn't illegal to express political opposition through whatever form, right? It's that um, we have a constitutional protection for treason entirely to enshrine the legitimacy mm-hmm. of principled political opposition, whether you agree with the substance of that opposition or not. So going back to my point earlier about yeah. uh, erosion and yeah. gradual shifting, or maybe not so gradual, chipping away at important norms, I think that this is an area where it's important to say that words matter. Precision mm-hmm. with categories and the labels we use for them matter. And this is something we talk about a lot in our classrooms when we talk about terrorism. Yep. There's a familiar uh, aspect of talking about uh cyber security issues where people are very quick to say, well, cyber warfare this or cyber attack that. And like, hold on, you know, are we talking about espionage? Are we talking about a crime? Are we talking about something else? All these areas, there's a tendency to be loose with language and a tendency by some to uh, belittle those who will do what we're doing now, which is saying, no, it's not okay to uh, grossly overuse or to recklessly overuse a term. So... I just, I mean, and so for all the folks who thought, you know, I mean, there are lots of folks who yelled at me last summer about this, who said, listen, it's okay to use treason colloquially, even if you're not meaning that it's right. in, in its legal term. Exactly. And my response is, no, it isn't. And here's why. Right, right. Yeah. And you, you, you muddy the category across the board when you use it colloquially in a way that's different from the term of art usage. Oh, well. Yep. All, all right, right. Now that we've <laughs> bored everyone out of their skulls. Let's uh, talk about that traitor, Devin Nunes. Traitor, treason, same problem, I'm, Steve. I'm just Nunes. All right, so we had a whole podcast. If you didn't listen to it, we had our <laughs> prior podcast, number 57, goes into great detail, our thoughts on the Nunes memo. What we want to talk about now is what's happened since then. Yep. Um, so in, what, in the long four days since the, we last sat it's down. It's kind of record. amazing it's only been four days. It really is. Uh, and that it's only February you know, 6th. And again... I am acutely aware that by spending time talking about this, I know. we are playing right into the hands of those who that, you know, ha- half thing. the game is like making this thing that's not a thing into a thing. But but at the, so so I got I got some heat on this on Twitter over the weekend as well. So there was a meme going around Twitter over the weekend once we found out that the original FISA warrant 
for Carter Page, warrant, the FISA order for yes. Carter Page yes. um, was issued Precision by terms. Uh, Judge Rudolph Contreras, right? So there was this meme going around that Contreras was no bomb, that Obama had put him on the FISA court. Oh, yeah. Right? yeah and yeah. so I sort of tweeted about how that was complete nonsense. Um, how <laughs> because con- it's literally not true. It's literally not true, right? Contreras was nominated and appointed to the D.C. District Court by President Obama, but four years later he was de- designated to the FISA court by Chief Justice Roberts, because that's how the FISA court works. Friends, let's just recap. Uh, to be a judge of the FISA court, you must be an Article Three federal judge, and the Chief Justice of the United States must pick you and assign you to the FISA court, and you accept, and boom, there you've got your the, the Chief term. Justice, that 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 vessel of the deep deep state left wing conspiracy that he is. Yeah, <laughs> um, it, it but, explains but, so much. But so, but so, one of the responses to that was, you know, why are you dignifying this nonsense, right, with a response? And the answer is because I think it is incumbent upon people to correct factual records. Oh yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a crazy critique. I'm I'm, I'm surprised to hear that that was something. It's, you see all things. You see all kinds of things on Twitter. Well, right. Maybe the lesson here is like quit worried about what kind of yeah. heat you get on Twitter. But anyway, so so so. But I feel the same way about why I think it's worth talking about what subsequently happened with the memo ah. because I think creating a you know helping folks to see what is the objective truth of the situation and then where we are interjecting our own subjective opinions I think is one of the best things we can do you know on this podcast. And then, you know, if people don't listen, that's their fault. Well, Lord knows it's better than our stock tips and our Super Bowl picks. Damn straight. So, you know, strike one, strike two, maybe this, maybe this will be it. <laughs> maybe not so much. I feel like our legal predictions are actually usually pretty good. Yeah, I actually, I think we've demonstrated that we're, whether you agree with us or not, that we, you know, have some qualifications for our day job and zero qualifications for everything else we talk about. Indeed. Uh, right. Well said. All right. That's basically our tagline. Okay. Um, so one, <laughs> we're going to make t-shirts. Zero qualifications for everything else. Yeah. Period. Colon, the National Security Law Podcast. I'd wear that. Okay. Uh, okay. So uh, the release of the Nunes memo yes. uh, famously was greeted by a chorus of folks pointing out that the this one of the many sins of that memo is its omissions. It's hugely material omissions. And thus, the next step in the storyline has been, will we see a uh, countervailing rebuttal memo, most likely the Adam Schiff-drafted uh, so-called hipsy... Little, little Adam Schiff. Little, yeah, I can't even dignify that one. <laughs> um, the minority report, if you will, yes. on the memo. And of course, uh, just it was it yesterday that the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence voted to support release of the shift unanimously, memo. apparently unanimously, right, and rightly so. I mean, like a lot of the momentum, insofar as people meant what they were saying uh, behind releasing the newness memo, was hey, let's have it all out. Yep, it is. It is manifestly hip- hypocritical to say that that gets to come out. This doesn't. That doesn't require argument even to show that that's the case. But the, now it gets interesting. So under the same the same process is underway here. That was used to release the Nunes memo, which had, you know, classified information. Um, the White House has the ball now, right, Steve? Yes. So, and so the question is, will President Trump just you know, say, yeah, sure, why not put it out there? Or, and it's not hard to imagine him doing this, will he actually, you know, just refuse? And then what happens? So the way that this is, I'm, I'm reading from the the rules of the House of Representatives. It's Rule 11 um, G1, right? Good stuff for everybody. Um, and basically the way it works is once the committee votes, right, the matter is supposed to be referred to the president. 
Um, the president personally in writing, in writing notifies the select committee that the president objects to the disclosure of such information, provides reasons therefore, and certifies that the threat to the national interest of the United States posed by the disclosure is of such gravity that it outweighs any public interest in the disclosure. If that happens, the select committee may, by majority vote, refer the question of the disclosure of such information to the House. Right? So they'd have to vote again. Um, so first they have to vote again to refer to the full House, and then the full House right, is supposed to then vote on the matter. What's the actual language there? Because I'm curious whether it's discretionary for Speaker Ryan to schedule that vote. So I think, so this is a very complicated rule, so Mm -hmm. bear with me. I'm now in 11G, uh, what is this, G1, no, G2D. Um, That's just some nerdy law goodness right there. Whenever the select committee votes to refer the question of disclosure to the House, the chair shall not later than the first day on which the House is in session following the day on which the vote occurs report the matter to the House. Uh, If the chair does not offer in the House a motion to consider in closed session a matter reported within four calendar days on which the House is in session after the recommendation, um, then such a motion shall be privileged when offered by a member, delegate, or resident commissioner. So any member. So Schiff could offer the privilege motion. In either case, such a motion shall be decided. So Okay, so it has to get... Without debate or intervening motion except one that the House adjourn. Um, <laughs> upon adoption by the House of a motion to resolve in the closed session, the Speaker may declare a recess subject to the call of the chair. Um, whew, debate shall be limited to two hours, equally divided. After such debate, the previous question... Wait, wait I thought there was no debate. Debate on the question described in F. Oh, upon shall the House approve... So there's no debate unless there's a recess. And then if there's a recess, there's a debate after the recess. Okay, so if they want to debate this, if anyone wants to debate this, the Speaker would have to, I imagine, would have to make the decision to recess the House, which has got to be, I, I'm no expert in this stuff, but that's got to be a, a more weighty thing to do than just this narrow issue. Correct. So they could kind of run this thing through with just a vote with no no discussion, or else they have to recess the House and, and then, then come back and have a debate. And here's the interesting question. Um, the vote has to be an open session. Um, yeah, well, so, that's good. So, the, da, 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 right. Right, so people have to put their cards on the table. We can watch it on C-SPAN. It'll be great fun. We can watch the vote, although we'll have no idea. If they have a debate, the debate can be in closed session. Right. Well, yeah, I'm not sure we really want to hear what they're saying. Anyways. No. Anyway, all this is to say, right, that the ball is now in the president's court, right, and that as with the Nunes memo, he now has five days under the terms of the House rule to either agree with the recommendation of the House Intelligence Committee to declassify this thing mm-hmm. or to reject it. Question. I think this is a hard question, and I think I know what the answer has to be. Is it possible in theory, no no one having on the outside seen the underlying affidavit, that there is stuff in the Schiff memo that is by definition going to be additional to whatever was in the Nunes memo that actually triggers a different means and methods protection calculus? Not only do I think it's possible, I think it's likely, right? So so my sense – so the Schiff memo is apparently 10 pages – um, and apparently has several dozen footnotes. We'll talk about footnotes in a yes, second. Um, and apparently there's a lot more sort of sensitive information in the shift memo than, by all accounts, the one piece of previously classified information in the Nunes memo, i.e. that Christopher Steele was a longtime FBI informant. Right. So hypothetically, what if part of the uh, the original Carter Page FISA order application included reference to either information from a human source, right, in the Russian, yet, in Russia, exactly, or 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 surveillance or something, and that that's sort of central to the to the point of the rebuttal memo, which yep. is to say, look at this much weightier. Right. The dossier was a sideshow, or or not a necessary condition, only an additional. So it strikes me that the it strikes me that it's entirely possible that a responsible White House 
would respond to the intelligence committee's yeah. motion to declassify the memo by agreeing a declassification with significant redactions. Right. And then the question would be whether those redactions met with the approval of the memo's author, to wit, Mr. Schiff. Now, not to sound too much like the Princess Bride, but <laughs> Schiff is smart and he knows that they know this and that this might happen, and yep. therefore planning ahead might have decided to, you know, to drink minimize. some biocane powder. Right, that's right. Or in this case, to right. go ahead and minimize <laughs> the stuff that would set up that kind of objection. Yep. yep. But of course, so so let's play this all out, right? So it seems like there are three possible outcomes here, right? Outcome number one is the White House says no. In which case we have this messy, messy, messy floor situation in the house, in the full yep. house, right? Assuming the intelligence committee sends it to the full house, which I think yeah. they'd be under a lot of pressure to mm-hmm. do. Um, option number two is the White House says the same thing it said for the Nunes memo, which is sure release the whole damn thing, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, which um, of course is that'd be the reasonable thing to do, except that what if there are some details that shouldn't come out? And then option number three is intermediate, right? Some redactions, yeah. you know, perhaps negotiated negotiated redactions. Um, it's worth stressing that if the end game here is not. Right, disclosure of Mr. Schiff's memo that is satisfactory to Mr. Schiff. He, of course, has a fallback option available to him. Exactly so. So if if he gets foiled at any step along the way, or if any member of of the committee who wants this thing out there, uh, there is something they can lawfully, wisely is a different question, but they can certainly <laughs> lawfully do. Which is repair to the floor of the House of Representatives and read the damn thing into the congressional record. Under the color of the protection of the speech and debate clause of the Constitution. So it's actually, I'm not sure, I'm not sure the word I would use is lawful. It is actually illegal, but it is, but they it's are immune, immune but they it's are immune. immune from any penalty. Right. Now, that does that mean that you couldn't be, it's an interesting question, could you be kicked off Hipsy? Um... I'm not saying you would be, but is that cons- does penalty connote prosecute prosecution? You know, I, I would have to think that the House would want to honor its own privileges, right? So I think I think it would be political, okay. where perhaps right. it would be a ground for arguing why you should not reelect this person. Yeah, which right? I think yeah, it's a that's a Safe bugger feature. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, I think that's not going to be a problem for. Him. In all, fact, all, if I, I would argue that the politics actually strongly, oh, of if, course they do. If, if he could he could kind of mark himself as as a substantial figure. Well, the, ir- the irony is, I don't think Mr. Schiff has ever had designs on higher office. No, right? but that could start well, but, raising the question. Yeah, but President Trump tweeted, you know, all he wants is higher office. I actually think he has no interest in higher office. I, I don't know one or the other. I, I have interacted with him before, yeah. including testifying um, in. That guy is a pretty serious, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. reasonable person. Um, Wait, okay. he is? Yeah, that's yeah. not that's not the view I got from right when. Now, now, what about what? <laughs> well, let's just not talk about Twitter. Um, <laughs> what about the possibility that so the president says no? Imagine even in good faith says no. There's problems with this. It shouldn't all come out. Maybe yep. a lot of it shouldn't come out. Yep. And then the House proceeds either you know to a vote or whatever. Can the president at that point say, well, listen, that's great and all that the House rules yeah. say that you can release this, but I think constitutionally I have Article Two authority over classified information, including an affirmative duty to protect it. Yes. And could the president go to court to try to get an injunction to stop the House from releasing the document, setting aside the sort of the nuclear option of just reading it into the record under the speech and debate clause? You know, it's a great question. I I, I wish I had a good sense of what the answer was. Yeah. I mean, right. That's, that's, it's, it sets up like a classic political I mean, question. We would be in such uncharted territory. Th- so it wouldn't be, wouldn't be moot? It wouldn't be wouldn't moot. It would be ripe. I mean, it would be ripe. Uh, He'd have there standing. would be standing. Yep. So I think all I th- the elements think- are there. It's just the question, is there a judicially administrable? Of course, we all know those, those factors at a certain level are just sort of 
buckets. And what's actually going on is, does a court want to grasp well, that plus, nettle? I, mean, I think there's also, there's a fair point. There's, there's, a, there's a way of arguing. And I suspect, I, I have never studied this, but I suspect if we went back and looked at the legislative history that led to Section 11 of the House rules, right, we'd see some of this. Well, you called it legislative history, but it wouldn't really be legislative uh, history. Would sorry. Uh, uh, contemporaneous rulemaking history. Yes. Whatever. Uh, um, parole evidence. Right. Um, I suspect that part of why the rule is structured the way it is, is so that the the committee cannot override the president. Right. Right. Only Only the the full full house House can override the president. Right. And it seems to me that that is Congress's way of saying, you know, dear courts. Right. If this ever comes to you, you know, we are we are saving this bazooka for every for the moment at which all other avenues have been exhausted. Of course, interestingly, it's one house. It's unicameral. It doesn't yeah. require. It doesn't. It doesn't bring to bear the full power of Congress. But it's not legislation, right? Statute. And so, I guess so. Statute. So, so my gut instinct, right? And this is just gut, is that a court would say, well, the you know, it's true that the Constitution gives the president right control over classified information. Although you and I have talked about before that I don't think it's quite as. Um, Indefeasible. As you, you have a more uh, uh, ecumenical approach. I do. I do. Um, as as unlike so many other things, um, <laughs> I think a court would say the Constitution quite expressly recognizes you know the power of any member of the House right to walk onto the floor and read the stuff in the congressional record, and that if that's already true. Right? Is it such an affront to the separation of powers if, after this sophisticated inner branch process, the full House or full Senate, because I think there's a comparable provision in the Senate rules, um, votes to release this material? That might cut the other way, in my view. Uh-huh. I think that the fact that there is this outlet, oh. that the Constitution is already thought about, necessary. Like, look, there's no need to do it because yeah. the Constitution's already uh, described it. And, and the reason why you might want to force people to stick with that, besides yeah. the fact that, look, that's what the Constitution hmm. says, is uh, that also. Also, you know, somebody's got to, some person's got to put their money where their mouth is. It's a heck of a separation of powers problem. Yeah, it I, is. I, What's crazy and kind of interesting about this is my suggestion just now points towards the possibility that the constitutional solution that's most textually faithful might actually favor uh, individual action, which mm-hmm. is by definition a much higher risk proposition than the collective action of the House, which should make me want to favor your. That, that's, so that's what I'm saying. Like, like what, if you were, you know, neutral Supreme Court justice, right? Wouldn't you prefer a process? Where it took a majority vote of the House, yeah. as opposed to you know Mike Gravel. Well, certainly, if we were drafters, I would say like, look, something like this. If you're gonna, if you're gonna, if if there's gonna be a non-executive authority to but without just being you know lawbreaking yeah. or, or civil yeah. disobedience, um, if we're gonna design this, let's let's require some kind of collective action by Congress, not in, not just any one member of the House. I, I think there's gonna be plenty of scholarship about Section 11G of the of the House rules, um, which you know, by the way, we I mean, we just you know, note to the the seven of you who are casebook adopters, right? We just actually posted a note on Section 11 uh, to the website for the, the Dicus et al. Counterterrorism You're telling me it wasn't already in there? Come on. It had never been used. I know. Um, and it's not and it's not in the section on FISA, right? It's in the section on, it's in the chapter protection on classified protection of classified information. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's, it's a great, it's a great case study. Um, All right. Uh, so, so, but, but let, to get back to the yeah. real world for a second, I don't think we're going to get to this fantastic common law hypothetical, right? Because I actually think the White House is probably going to, if not completely acquiesce, at least acquiesce to the point of negotiated redactions. Right. Well, because you know what it'll do? It'll keep this story at the front of the news cycle Correct. for a while. It Correct. refreshes it. Right. All right. And, that, and, and without having to go to what we are told are the other, apparently five, perhaps, right. newness memos, oh, yeah. whatever you know, other staff product he's Can got. Can this guy's 15 minutes be up soon? Uh, that would, uh, you know, that would be nice. All right, uh, uh, I think two lessons I want to say about this. Right, the first is um, Nunes himself, by the way, has now conceded. 
both that he did not read the underlying FISA application and that there may be information in there that actually discloses to the FISA court that right. there were political motivations behind so, the dossier. So in the former, he says, look, Trey Gowdy did. Right. And, and Gowdy has been so – Gowdy has been very interesting lately. He's been giving these statements. Ever, for, since, he, ever since he announced that he wasn't running for re-election. Exactly. Hello, term limits seem like a good idea for everybody. <laughs> uh, it seems to have this liberating effect. Um, he has been saying some very responsible things about yes. how nothing in the Nunes memo affects the Russia investigation, the Mueller investigation. It's for him. He's framing it as this is about nothing more, nothing less than Carter Page's civil liberties. Um, and if that's you know if that's all it is, that's fine. That's not what the White House is trying to do. Well, right, no, no. And so right, the fact that Trey Gowdy himself is now conceding that I think proves yeah. that why this not, is and not just conceding it, but like very conspicuously. Yeah. No, in, going on the Sunday yeah. shows. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I, so credit to Trey Gowdy there. For the first time ever, I will agree with that. Um, okay. And then the second piece of this is you know the under the of course the thing at the heart of all of this is the underlying FISA application in Carter Page's case. And there's now a very interesting motion that the New York Times, together with Mafia, the Media Freedom Information and Accountability and Access Clinic. They should work on that. um, I love it. Um, Clinic at Yale Law School have now filed in the FISA court, um, not, not seeking compelled disclosure, but asking the FISA court to take advantage of its own authority under its own rules and the USA Freedom Act to declassify all or at least substantial parts of the underlying FISA application. And so this has never happened nope. before. And you might think, well, wait a minute, but don't sometimes don't the fruits of FISA surveillance orders get used in criminal cases? And then doesn't the defendant move to suppress on the grounds that the order was improperly given originally? Yes, except that the, the, the defendant never, the defense counsel never gets access. As far as I know, it's uh, it may never have happened, right, that they actually get access to the underlying affidavit. So, it's yeah. always done ex parte. So under 50 USC section 1806F, mm-hmm. um, now yeah. I'm just now I'm just being a nerd, right? Um, although you, you know it too. Um, the way it works is the the power belongs to the district judge right. to decide to disclose yeah. that much of the underlying uh, warrant app or order application. As is relevant, yeah. Um, not relevant, necessary. But, but they never do. Well, they never determine that you should disclose. So there's the full one thing. prominent case where the judge did, there- right? Daoud, where where the where the trial judge said, in order to decide the Frank's question, I need to allow the security cleared defense counsel to see the entire application in order to figure out whether there was any malfeasance or mischief or whatever. So that that was a big deal because until then it had not been done. Well, so it's been done once. No, because then the Seventh no. Circuit reversed. Ah, right. <laughs> I so recall so that. in twenty fourteen, right there was this there was this really important opinion. A very Richard Posnerian opinion by Judge Posner, basically slapping down the district court. Um, and, you know, I, I really – I have lots of problems with Posner's opinion. Um, Judge Rovner wrote actually I think a much more convincing concurrence mm-hmm. in Dawood that explains why it's probably the right result, but Posner sort of a misogynistic, you know – Oh, douche. Is that, is, um, that what, is that what she wrote? No, but there are shots. He takes shots. The district judge in this case was a woman, right? Posner, like, refers to her, like, derisively. Right? Like, you know, she, she seemed to think she could blah. It was just, it was very not oh, cool. Wow. Sound, well, I mean, look, Posner's had his issues lately. But, but be that aside, right? The, the substantive point is there's the one instance I'm aware of, right, where a district judge in an 1806F right, Frank's context – actually ordered full disclosure and got reversed. Yeah, this actually has some echoes of, of the Reynolds rule with state secrets yep. privilege. Yep. Um, and, and that example is a bit of a red flag since, after all, the, 
the the Reynolds case is sort of widely understood to have had <laughs> a, an essential flaw in it in that the <laughs> the whole thing was a fraud in that that, the that was ju- the essential flaw. Yeah, in that case the judge wasn't even looking himself right. at all the underlying details. But set that aside. Um, Just wait, hold on really quickly. Yeah. For those who don't know, so Reynolds is the 1953 Supreme Court case that is the modern sort of fountainhead precedent for the state secrets privilege. It's the Supreme Court's blessing for what had already come into being as the state, state secrets privilege. And it contains this, this what we'll summarize as a gross factual error about what was in the underlying so, documents. So it's about a, it's about a, a B-29, B-29. Uh, crash right, while on a training mission. And the families of the victims had sued for damages because they thought that the government, you know, they thought the government was negligent, right? And the accident report, they wanted report, the accident report. The accident report apparently proved that the government was negligent. And the government showed up and said, no, no, the accident report's a state secret. There's all kinds of secret stuff we were testing well, on the, the plane. So the flight was testing a bunch of exotic uh, radar technology. And the suggestion that was made to the court was that, all right, the report's going to reveal this. This, yes. is, this is like strategically important stuff. Uh, long story short, it, the, didn't, it didn't. didn't have those details in there. But but the Supreme Court had determined that unless it's absolutely necessary, right. uh, you, the judge shouldn't even look at the underlying uh, what's in the content of evidence of that kind. Yep. Um, and this has widely been described, or at least I've described it, as, <laughs> as the, the original sin of the Reynolds rule. Yes. But I'm also very much associated with the view that that's different from calling into question the idea that there is a state I agree. No, I agree. It's and about so, the process of how the judge should vet And the so claim. back to FISA for a second, yeah. right? So one of the things that Judge Rovner suggested in her Dawood concurrence was that, if anything, concerns about whether a criminal defendant could fully vindicate his or her Fourth Amendment and due process rights in this context could potentially be vindicated by a special advocate, right? By having right. someone in the FISA process who is looking out for the rights of the putative target. So things come full circle. Indeed. Now, you mentioned also that, so there's this FOIA request, yep. or I guess it's not a FOIA request, it's a, it's a motion within the rules of but the they court. But so they also filed a FOIA request with DOJ. Right. So because they're trying DOJ to get is two in pos- Because presumably DOJ is in possession Right of the of the underlying it application. certainly ought to be right. right. Uh, so I think it's unlikely that uh, that the DOJ FOIA request gets granted. No. Now, could the FISC decide? Yeah, you know, we can redact this and, and publish it. Certainly might. That would, that would be very interesting. Um, I wonder. Do you know? Does that go? Who would decide it? The judge that originally granted it? Does it get wheeled out to whoever's the FISC judge of the moment? Does it go to the chief judge of the FISC? I assume it goes to whoever is the the duty judge. Yeah. I assume that if they decide to do it and the government's not happy about it, the government could take this to the FISC court of review. Well, first they could ask for the FISC to sit on bonk, right? There's a mechanism by which you could move, right? That's what happened with the ACLU standing case that we've talked about before. This is going to get procedurally tangled pretty quick. Yep. Um, all right, well, we'll, well see. But, or, but, right, I mean, listen, the, the point, I mean, in many ways, the purpose of the New York Times and Mafia's um, motion, I think, was to remind the FISC that it has a whole lot of independent yeah, authority. Yeah, oh, absolutely. If, if nothing else, just to say, hey, don't, you know, don't forget, we're, and we're right, watching, and we're right. going to talk about this Don't forget about Rule 62, right? Don't forget about USA Freedom Act. And, you know, maybe you could actually, you know, help us all out, yeah. right, by declassifying some of this. What's, the thing for people to keep in mind is it is very possible that the, the bottom truth, the application included lots of sources and methods yeah. that are not yet in the public sphere and that shouldn't be. And so ironically, the stronger FBI's case was in that direction. The harder it's going to be to disclose. The harder it is going to be to convince the public that yep. the newness stuff is a bunch of baloney. True.
Yeah. All right. Should we uh, pivot to Guantanamo? Yeah. You want to talk? Uh, Harvey? Let's talk about the. So, in My, full our, disclosure, our, our, our we, we yeah. are quite literally uh, friends and pals with Harvey Rishkoff and Gary Brown. And, in in our, you know, just from a friend's perspective, sorry to see that um, something negative happened career wise here. There's a French joke here the one with the firings. The one with the firings. <laughs> um, now, whether, whether they're unhappy, I don't know. Haven't spoken to either one and don't have any inside knowledge of this. Let's be clear about that. But True. Harvey was the convening authority, which put him in a position of considerable authority in relation to the actions of the office of the prosecutor and the overall functioning of the military commission system. Right. So, uh, the, so you want the, to highlight some of the things he's done in recent months that have been sort of in the news? Sure. I mean, so the two most important things that a convening authority does vis-a-vis the military commissions is the convening authority must approve new charges that the prosecutor wants to bring. So basically, the convening authority is serving as almost like a not a grand jury yeah. because obviously he's yeah. a, they're in the government. But he's a veto gate for those but charges to move forward. it's a veto gate for the charges, right? Yeah. That, that the prosecution can't just say, I charge Bobby with X and the charges go out. The convening authority is supposed to be a sort of check on right. the prosecutor's exercise of his discretion. And then on the far side of the proceedings, once a conviction has been rendered and a sentence handed down, the convening authority is actually the first layer of review, not appellate review, but internal administrative yeah, review. Administrative. The convening authority has so to the same app- way a commander would in a court martial, yeah. right? The convening authority has to approve the sen- the, 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 the the verdict and the the the, the verdict and the sentence, okay. and he or she can modify them. So let's take that one because that's the probably the most visible thing here. Yes. He he exercised this authority recently. Yes. So I mean, the two most prominent things Harvey has done since he took the job last April. First, he actually rejected proposed charges that you know in the uh, in the Bali case, which eventually came back in different form. And have now been. I think have they been approved? Or have they been I actually referred? don't know the current status of it, but there there was at least some friction involving right. what what the charges would be in the case involving uh, Hambali and the other uh, yep. Indonesian Al Qaeda linked deta- defendant slash detainees. But the more recent uh, news that we've talked about this on this on this podcast um, is Harvey approved the conviction, but uh, suspended the sentence of Marine Corps General John Baker, the chief defense counsel of the military commissions for contempt of court, contempt of Judge Spath, as part of that whole imbroglio over, you know, cleared uh, uh, learned counsel and concerns about eavesdropping in the Nashiri case. So this is the whole uh, sort of tug of war over whether Judge General Baker gets the last word on when defense counsel in these cases can withdraw or if instead the trial judge gets the last word. And when Judge Baker stood his ground, he was found in contempt. And uh, what was it, sentenced to quarters? Uh, uh, he, was, he, was set, he was confined to quarters for 21 days. He was fined, I think, $1,000. Right. And, and so this is where Harvey intervened on the punishment but sustained the, the principle of the conviction. Um, and so one can imagine that none of these actions maybe went down well in some quarters. Uh, it could be. Could be that these are part of the problems. Maybe there's, maybe not. But I mean, as we talked about way back when, when this happened, in Harvey's memorandum um, approving the conviction but suspending the sentence, there's actually a couple of pages where he goes out of his way to direct his, not ire, but to direct some fairly, I think, well earned criticisms toward the problem that apparently gave rise to this whole kerfuffle in the first place, i.e., the concerns about eavesdropping. And he basically wrote, you know, it should be possible um, to construct a facility, right? To, to, to find a place where we can allow for attorney-client meetings to go forward without these concerns. Right, that it's reliably not going to be surveilled. So, um, which, 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 you know, who was his audience for that, right? I mean, we speculated at the time that, that, wasn't, that, that he was saying that to other people in the government. Like, guys, you know, stop messing with this. Well, I, I certainly think he was, he was certainly suggesting 
whether he was saying this is happening and it shouldn't, or whether he was just saying, look, let's just here's the solution. Right. Let's just set up dissipate, a new facility. Let's dissipate even the appearance of impropriety. Right, right, right. So, um, so and, these and, are all reasons why he he could have right. drawn the ire of the Pentagon and, or and, the CIA. Yeah, if it's about if, if so, but yeah. so if right if I'm speculating. If one speculates that the agency invested in eavesdropping that led to this whole mess, right, was not DOD because they've said on open record in court that it's not them, right, but was CIA, which, by the way, we know has previously been involved in surreptitious monitoring of the military commissions, the whole red light fiasco, right, um, then it's not preposterous to speculate that the CIA would be the ones least, most troubled Right by Harvey suggesting that we should find a way to clean up to sanitize this whole process. That would require them concluding that not only were they troubled enough to try to act on this, but then they actually influenced yep. the Secretary of Defense to or, fire. Yep. Or in which I just sounds wrong to me, but of course, who knows? Well, so so, so yeah. can I throw out a couple of other crazy? Yeah, let's so, so I have some ideas too. Let's okay. throw some ideas. So um, the the next real interesting moment in the military commissions is supposed to be two weeks from today, mm-hmm. when um, Ahmed Al Darby um, is supposed to be released to Saudi Arabia pursuant to the terms of his plea agreement stemming from his guilty plea in the military commission. Um, It strikes me as possible that there are forces at work within the administration who are trying, if not to completely reverse that deal, at least frustrate its execution. And Harvey might have objected to that. So you will certainly know soon. I'd be really surprised if that turns out to be the case. I think they've kind of conspicuously left open in the new executive order, for yeah. example, just this kind of pathway where it's pursuant to court order and, and part of a, uh, a judicial process. That's like the one path out of Guantanamo now. Mm-hmm. So I think that actually they'll, they'll we'll find out. But I think they're going to go ahead and, and move him out. And they'll mm-hmm. just say, hey, this is all – they'll just cite this as proof that the military commission process works. And, and look, and it'll kind of wrong foot the critics a little bit. Say, look, he's he, don't you want these processes to continue? All right, well, those were my two ideas. Okay, so another possibility is simply that in the midst of the, I mentioned the new executive order, the president in the state of the union says, hey, we're going to start bringing more people there. Um, It is possible that it's no more and no less than there is a new surge afoot to try to speed up and further accelerate things and a desire to put in place hand-picked people who are really bought into that mission that we are going to lean forward aggressively with quick and aggressive uh, facilitation of reference of charges and the rest. And that they just looked at, at Harvey and Gary and decided, well, you're not on that they're team. They're cogs in the machine. Well, well no. They're not cogs. Just... They're, uh, they're, they're um, sabot, right? They're, 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 they're shoes, right? Stopping up the works. The, even, well, even if they're not. So I'm trying to get the idea that even if there wasn't any particular animus or, or concern about like, oh, they're not on the team. Yeah. Um, it may just simply be that they, they've identified those positions as critical for putting in place extra aggressive posture people. Or extra sycophantic people. Uh, yeah, I don't see. So I see so much of this coming out of the uh, Pentagon more so yeah. than White House. Okay. So I'm I'm more drawn to the solution that it's just that Mattis or someone within the upper tiers yeah. of the Pentagon they want to see this pick up speed and they want to cherry pick some people to put in those positions who will really drive well, the train I, fast. So 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 since this, since we're talking about Mattis and so we're assuming some degree of rationality, yes. right? Um, do you really? I mean, when you look at the commissions, do you see the convening authority as the real sort of obstacle at the moment to why the commissions aren't moving faster if you can't you can't just pick look for just one right because there's a yeah. million reasons why but the fact that the convening authority is in a position to, to screen the charges as we said a moment ago makes that person someone that if if you really had this idea like we are gonna we're gonna super charge this yeah. process yeah. that's not a crazy place to look where you'd want to put in someone who's really bought into that yeah, mission sure and, and maybe they decided harvey wasn't that guy so 
all these are possible. Um, the one thing, the, the one thing, the, the reason why this might matter, right, is because there are serious concerns already in the commissions about what we've talked about before, unlawful command influence, right, where decisions are being made due to what is perceived to be inappropriate political pressure. Um, if Harvey and Gary were fired for reasons that in any way, right, redound to the specifics of these cases, that's only going to reinvigorate the objection that there's unlawful command influence going on. I have no doubt that the specter of that will be will be touted. And if I was a defense attorney, I would certainly be trying to dig into this yeah. and find ways to cast it that way. I'd be pretty surprised if it turns out that it's something as ham-handed, ham-handed as that. Um, but you never know. I mean, Not, it, you never know with the military You know, it's it's just. I mean, it's and it's it's just yet another moment. I mean, there's a story I think in the New York Times today or yeah, yesterday, today. Yeah. right, about uh, Lieutenant Piet, right, the one lawyer who's sort of left holding the bag in the Nashiri case with it's, all it's the other very, lawyers. It's very a few good men, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Uh, so that, I mean, I think David Phillips. I think I don't think he had been to Guantanamo before. So I think this was all like a my first trip to Guantanamo type of story. Um, but you know, I just every one of these stories, Bobby, and it just hits home to me, like. Why is anyone still defending these? Like, legally, fine. We're still in debate, you know, do, can they lawfully exercise jurisdiction over these offense offenders? Fine. But, like, this, it's such a cluster. I mean, it's just a, a cluster and a half. Like, you know, I'm a proponent of using the federal civilian courts, and I think that we would have had uh, capital punishment in the 9-11 case already, and a lot of these people would already be in there serving their life sentences. So I'm with you on the practicalities. I think, you know, to try to... You asked the question, like, why would people of good faith in their right mind, like, continue to try to make this work? I do think that there's a lot of there's a body of opinion within the military that military commissions were an important instrument of justice over time. Yep. They weren't problematic this way in the past. Right. And that, and that it, this needs to get fixed. And people are not going to just give up on them at a certain point. They're going to keep pouring resources into them. Seems like good money after bad, if you will, from my position. But yeah. I, I can see where a good faith person might say, no, no, no. We keep screwing this up, but we've just got to get the right people in there. But it's, it's, it's I, I guess all I can say is if the last 16 years has taught us anything, right? Yeah. It ain't the people. It ain't the people. No, there's some. There's something. I mean, because, because you know, I mean, listen, you know, like some of these guys like them, don't like them, whatever. But man, have yeah. there not been, you know, there have been plenty of people in there who have tried awfully hard to fix this. Well, and as you know, I'm, I'm a big admirer of Mark Martins, uh, who I, I used to work for at one Indeed. point. That's right. And, uh, in- although, although I think he admires you more than me. I, I think I'm sure Mark right now is listening while he's like on a, the 12th mile of his jog. And he's like thinking, 40 miles I jog. like you guys equally. Yeah, kind of meh. <laughs> <laughs> All right, enough of the commissions. What about um, our enemy combatant elsewhere? Oh, wait, that guy. John Doe. John uh, Doe. So Doe v. Mattis is our, our, maybe our most recurring theme of all. By the way, speaking of my case, the case book, so I had yep. to write a note about the case, right? <laughs> um, and Judge Chutkin's very first decision from December has the most unfortunate caption for a case name I've ever seen. What? It is ACLU Foundation XREL Unnamed U.S. Citizen versus Mattis. God, that's straight out of like a war- an ex parte warrant application. Right. How about just take take the author's pr- privilege or the editor's privilege and just call it Doe v. Mattis. Well, that's what the second one is. Okay. Yeah. Um, All right, so so there's a couple of things. No, there's nothing concrete that's we can really dig into, but we can well, preview. There's one. Some, there's one we'll, we'll, we'll preview. We'll preview two things. Yeah. Uh, one is the return, the factual return, yep. and, and and statement of law. Which what what is the return? You should imagine basically a combined statement of facts at some level and statement of law that's explaining both the legal and the factual grounds. 
Whether in detail or at a high level of generality, well, that's what we're going to find out mm -hmm. as an initial filing, like an answer, in effect. Um, that's due, I, Steve, I think we're not sure. It's I, think it's, I think it's like next week, next Friday. It's either next week or the week after. Yeah. It's, it's due this month, so we're getting to it. And, uh, you know, for those of us who've done the, the legal aspects of detention for a long time, you know, uh, we joked earlier, who is the lucky Defense Department affiant who <laughs> will be the new Michael Mobs? I remember yeah, Bob's the, declaration. Or Admiral Jacoby, the Jacoby declaration There's of the case. Some, somebody's got to you know, be the, the face of this Someone's going to be the affiant who says, here's where yeah. you know, Doe was picked up. Exactly, right? Acor according to our records and right. so forth. So don't expect like the giant affidavit like you would see with like, supporting the uh, FISA court application. No, no, no. It's this gonna is going to be a summary document. And I'm sure that everyone's going to react the same way they've reacted. Oh, wait, no, it's all hypocrisy. Sorry. What? Oh. I, I'm sure. Oh my gosh! A warrant was obtained in this country based on potentially biased informant testimony. Civil liberties crisis. Worst, <laughs> worst thing since the Revolutionary War. Are you, are you saying that uh, the, the 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 crocodile tears for Carter Page express hypocrisy vis-a-vis -vis whoever this unnamed American who joined who, who who joined ISIS? I. I, I, apples and oranges. No, but I'm just saying the crocodile tales for Carter Page vis-a-vis -vis like the rest of the modern history of the surveillance state where the same uh, people who are now like it, up in arms. I think it's more of a coalition, right? You definitely have some some completely hypocritical crocodile tear stuff. But there's also a lot of like Tea Party types who are very much about the don't trust government, don't trust NSA, don't trust FBI. But reauthorize 702. Uh, I think a lot of them were not so happy about that. So okay, well, I think it's a it's a coalition, but never that's neither here nor there. Yes. The return's not here yet. <laughs> we will be really ready to dig into it. I think we should be prepared for it to be pretty generic and not say much more than's already been in the papers. Well, and frankly, I mean, listen, let's be clear, right? This we all agree. Uh, you and I could describe right now, right? What, what the, it's going to say. What it's we could write it. In fact, right? hey, we're happy to write it. For <laughs> you can speed this thing along. Um, well, because right, we all know, right, that the government was we did not actually capture this guy. Right. It's going right? to be uh, some kind of proxy Syrian forces, they took his surrender along with some others. Right. Maybe they'll mention where this occurred, maybe not. And so there might be hearsay about like what we were told at the time of capture about the right. circumstances. Bearing of an AK-47, yep. that sort of thing. Yep. Um, there won't be anything. I, I'll be very surprised if there's an interesting new fact. Um, okay. In, in in legal claims, it'll all be AUMF and NDAA. And, 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 and yeah. non-detention act, right? Yeah. I still think that... Oh, not, they may or may not spell that out, but it'll I all know. be in there. All right. But... Much so, more interesting. Much more interesting because it actually is is, is more, I think, immediate. Yeah. Um, so as we mentioned briefly on the emergency podcast on Friday, the government on Friday filed a notice of appeal to the D.C. Circuit, not from all of Judge Chutkin's rulings, but just from her specific order that the government provide Doe and his attorneys 72 hours notice before transferring him to a third-party country. Um, and the government has filed a notice of appeal in the D.C. Circuit on that specific issue. Bobby, presumably they're going to argue that the district court lacked the authority to require this kind of notice. Right. They will they will say, because they'll renew the arguments they, they yes. made to Judge Chutkin, um, and the, the thrust of it will have, since what's Chutkin did not bar the transfer. Chutkin required 72 hours notice because she views it as quite possible she would bar the transfer. And indeed, in her writing, she right. foreshadowed she probably, probably might, right. but she hours, didn't quite do it's it. It's 72 hours to allow the detainee and his lawyers to file an emergency application for a stay yeah. if there is a plausible legal ground on which they can object to right. the transfer. And, and there's basically, to remind our listeners who haven't you know, been, you know, completely absorbing everything we've been saying about this, there's basically two different types of claims you might expect to see at that point. One will be a fear of torture or a, a undue treatment uh, or abusive treatment 
Um, so a fear of torture type claim, and that's going to be an uphill battle, um, but, but obviously you, you want to know what the facts are first. Um, and then the other is quite apart from whether the person will be mistreated, there's simply the Valentine rule about you, you need affirmative statutory authority to, or, or treaty-based authority, one or the other, affirmative legal authority before you can take an American citizen and transfer them into the custody of a third party. And the Valentine case is sort of a, a straightforward sort of extradition scenario where the treaty didn't cover that particular scenario. So the guy... Uh, or was it two guys in New York couldn't simply be turned over to France because France requested them. They were citizens. You had to have a treaty or a statute, and there wasn't one. On the other hand, the government will say, but then there's Munaf, where it was much more, they would say, much more similar to the present case, where they were people who were by their own volition already overseas, in Iraq, got involved in the insurgency, in that case, AQI, um, and came into American custody, and then we're going to transfer them to Iraqi Criminal Prosecution Authority when the Iraqis were asking for that. This fact pattern depends on who they're being transferred to and all the rest, and there'll be little ways to distinguish it. But it seems pretty clearly, Steve, to fall between yeah, no, we and agree. Valentine. Yeah. yeah. And, and so the only that, interesting that's on question— That's the merits. Right, on the merits. So then the only question is, all right, so was it—since the merits are contestable, is it okay for Judge Chutkin to have insisted on 72 hours' notice? Now, I think it's bound to be okay. But the government obviously is going to try to challenge the fact of the 72-hour notice rule, which I think is a pretty uphill battle for them. I don't, so I don't know how uphill it is. I mean, I think how uphill it is depends upon how the current D.C. Circuit interprets its own prior decision in Kiamba 2, right. right? One of the weird cases we've talked about before. Right. So Kiamba 2 is this 2009 decision um, where the petitioners were some of the Uyghur detainees then at Guantanamo who the government conceded were no longer enemy combatants, who the government was seeking to transfer to third-party countries. And the, the detainees basically argued that they were entitled to notice in a hearing before their transfer to allow them to contest whether the country to which they were being transferred was one in which they credibly feared torture or other forms of cruel and human or degrading treatment. Um, and in Bukamba 2, the D.C. Circuit said, and now I'm, I'm quoting from, the, the, from Judge Ginsburg's majority opinion, this is not Ruth, Douglas, um, Munaf precludes a court from issuing a writ of habeas corpus to prevent a transfer on the grounds asserted by the petitioners here. Therefore, the detainees cannot prevail on the merits of their present claim, and the government is entitled to reversal of the orders enjoining transfer as a matter of law. So there are two ways I think you can read Kiamba 2. One is if the claim is simply a torture claim. Right then Munaf settles the matter, which, by the way... Leaves I, open the Valentine claim. So, I'm getting, I'm getting there, all right, all right. right? I actually... So I've written ad nauseum about why I think Kiamba 2 is completely wrong that Munaf settles the issue with regard to torture claims. As we've talked about before, you have to deal with footnote 6, right, of Chief Justice Roberts' majority opinion and the two sort of factual, unique factually unique things about Munaf, that they were already in the country to which they were being transferred right. and that they had not aggressively wa- raised the statutory claim under the Foreign Affairs Reform and Restructuring and Act. And Kiamba 2 kind of blows past the Kiamba 2 blows right past that. Okay. Um, so first of all, I'm not even sure so that's... Even th- so even as to torture, there's still room for debate about... Ex- I mean, there's room for debate if you go on bonk, right? Right, the problem right, is, right. The, right. It's law of the circuit. The language of Kiamba yeah. 2 is pretty darn clear. Right. Um, now, but it's worth stressing that Kiamba 2... So, sorry, one of the points about Kiamba 2... I want to sort of talk about its its history. Um, the other thing about Kiamba 2 is, you know, Judge Ginsburg says that they're assuming that the detainees in that case had the same rights as the detainees in um, Munaf, right, who were U.S. citizens. Right. But the, but Kiamba, just to underscore, these Uyghurs were not citizens. They were non-citizens outside the U.S. who under Kiamba 1, right, 
case also about the Uyghurs, actually, which was then on, which had just been decided by the DC Circuit, actually didn't even have due process rights. Um, right. So it seems to me that there are lots of ways for the DC Circuit to distinguish Kamba two, but I wouldn't be surprised at all if the government tries to wrap itself in Kamba two of course. on the procedural point that the court doesn't have the power to require notice and an ex ante hearing. So let's see if I can say I heard I heard three salient distinctions. One, uh, Kamba two dealt with non citizens who had no due process rights. These are citizens who do. Full stop. That you should stop. But see, but see the footnote in Ginsburg's opinion and how much you believe it. Right. Okay. And then secondly, um, Canva 2 didn't address the Valentine claim. It addressed the fear of torture claim. Correct. And distinction three, Canva 2, and this is where you can't really distinguish it. You just have to point out, you have to claim that it's wrong or in- incomplete because it didn't deal with Munaf's footnote six. Um, I'm going to give you a distinction four. Um, this is a very different DC circuit than the one that designed. <laughs> well, two. there's always that distinction. No, 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 you have because, to be more but, subtle in arguing that. But but here, no, but here's why that matters, right? So, um, folks who have studied the Guantanamo jurisprudence, right, I think know pretty well that the DC circuit, especially in 2009, 2010, was just about unanimous. Um, in generally siding with the government in these cases, Mm -hmm. right? And that some of that was a reflection of the far more conservative bent of the court at the time, and that some of that was perhaps a reflection that, you know, even centrist progressive judges were were not, you know, that sympathetic to the detainees. Well, here's a third possibility. The decisions were correct, and the court was affirming correct decisions. Well, so I don't think Canva 2 was correct, right? Like, whatever. So, but so Canva 2 is the the counterexample to all of those, right? Because Canva 2 was the one decision in that context that really provoked dissents. Yeah, that was a, that was much less uniform. So Judge Griffith, right, no bleeding heart, right, um, wrote a, a concurrence in part in Canva 2 where he raised some of his concerns about why the majority opinion went too far. Judge Griffith tried to take the issue on banc in a subsequent case called Abda, um, where the court denied on banc six to three, but where there were three judges quite angrily protesting the denial of on banc. Um, and I think it's safe to say the ideological shift in the D.C. Circuit from Abda to today would militate in favor of if it really came down to is Kiamba 2 controlling, saying it, it isn't. So this this sets up some potentially very interesting appellate action in yes. Doe v. Mattis. Yes. I, and, and I would love on, for them. On, on a peripheral issue, right? On an yeah. issue unrelated to the merits of whether Doe can be held. But see, that's where, yeah, right. No, for sure, right. Let's be clear that none of this is about actually, so if he is who the government claims he is, or if they right. can show by preponderance that he is that that an ISIS member, um, can they detain him? As I've said several times, I think that if they can show that, then yeah, they should be able to detain him. Um, but I think this question about the 72 hours notice is going to lead them doing engage on the underlying Valentine and Munaf issues, and that's going to be a a rich stew. I I think so, and and my hope is that they will read Munaf a little bit more carefully than their colleagues in Kiemba too, who I think read it rather overbroadly. I got to say, in light of, you know, just what a sort of a litigation morass this has turned into, it just continually amazes me that they didn't transfer this guy to Saudi Arabia back when they could have, and and I wonder if there's not a story there. That seems that they could have. No, indeed, but you just wonder, like, why? Why couldn't they have managed that? All of us say, stay tuned. Yeah, indeed. All right, All right. really quickly, um, our, our, our quick recap of Sunday night's oh, festivities. Yeah. And, and so, well, while most of you are signing off, uh, thank you for listening. For those who stick around because you just can't reach the button to fast forward it because your phone fell to the uh, far side of the car seat. Um, well, Steve, what did we think? Um, so I, I, you're going to laugh at me. I had, my, I, I, I had the same reaction in the Super Bowl that I had to The Last Jedi. <laughs> <laughs> that, that kind of it's gonna take me a second. Okay, to come around so on that. so which is it you was love the really commercials? it was really pretty, right? Uh, okay, it was really entertaining, 
right? A lot of really interesting stuff happened, and the more I thought about it, the less I liked it. There were 1,152 yards of total offense. That wasn't just the most in a Super Bowl. That wasn't just the most in a playoff game. That was the most in any game in the history of the National Football League. Where was the defense? Hello? Yeah. Is that right? Was it even regular season? Yes. I knew that was a playoff thing. Yes. Uh, so the Obliterated the prior so the record. Sc- it's interesting that the score doesn't quite pick up right. that degree of well, offense. You had, right, because you had a couple of important turnovers, mm-hmm. right? And you had, you know, uh, a couple of field goals on inside the 10-yard line, right? You had a couple of missed extra points. Well, I will say this. Um, the, the essential... Quality and by the way, it actually almost was the highest scoring Super Bowl. By one point, it missed the highest scoring Super Bowl. The essential quality you got to have in a Super Bowl is entertainment. The the world is watching, or at least most of America, and it abs- and it, you need drama and you need characters to root for. <laughs> uh, big shout out to Super Bowl MVP and Austin resident <laughs> and Westlake High chap Nick Foles. Now one of two. Two Westlake High grads from recent years who's been a Super Bowl MVP along with Drew Brees. So that's that's really cool for the <sighs> local school. Um, yes, that's what most Americans took away from the Super Bowl. I'm not. Who cares about most Americans? I'm talking about Austin. So that's pretty neat for Austin. Yeah. Um, as, the commercials as, were pretty crummy. As, as in... You know, as a guy in his 40s, I love seeing a 40-year-old. Is, what is he, 40, Tom yeah. Brady? I love seeing 40, over 40, Tom Brady. Throw for a Super Bowl record, 505 yeah, yards. that was pretty cool. And and the amazing, whether it was just all bad defense or what, it's still really cool to see one of the all-time greats at the peak of his game doing these impossible things. I mean, geez, it was a coin flip at the end. Yeah. They could have... The Patriots could have won that you know, on the that. ball. So I, I thought when the when the ball bounced like, up in there the end it is. zone, there I it was comes. like, "Who's there? Who's there?" I just figured Gronkowski was yeah, going to somehow come yeah. out of that. But but um, real the hats off to whichever Eagles secondary guy came flying in yeah. higher than Gronkowski yeah. and, and got involved in yeah, that grab. Yeah, yeah. I I loved it because of the drama. Yeah. Now now enough about football. Let's talk about these commercials because I know Steve. As I watched it, uh, my family we watched all these commercials and the whole deal, the halftime show too. There was one moment that really brought the house down. And I thought the blackout. Uh, no, well, the blackout was funny. Um, no, the the Eli Manning dirty dancing okay, okay, commercial. So the, yes, so are you, you and I? This is your team. Are you horrified or thrilled by that? I loved it, and so 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 my wife who was sitting next to me, Karen's watching the game. I'm watching the game. You know, there are a series of sort of teasers about Eli Manning and Odell yeah. Beckham Jr. And the teasers are terrible. It's like, what are they? Right? I, I, did someone screw up? And you finally get to the real thing. You're like, oh wow, that's brilliant. Especially if you know and like Dirty Dancing. Right. I would say not just especially, but perhaps only. Well, <laughs> fair enough. But so Karen, um, ever the Patriots fan, wondered if the NFL was trolling the Patriots by trotting out Eli Manning. Yeah, right. right. You know, he did get a lot of airtime during that right. Super Bowl. Um, Eli Manning, who you know, whose only claim to fame at this point is that he won two Super Bowls against Tom Brady. Not a bad, right? not a bad claim to so, fame. So Karen tweeted something like, you know, um, is the NFL really trolling the Patriots right now? And I just wrote back to her tweet. Two and zero. I will not begrudge you. I would love to have seen some Cowboys somehow in a in a prominently featured deal. The Vikings got no, a little no, the love Cowboys, there. Was the Dodge, the, the Cowboys, deal. I would have voted against. But, uh, no, I know you would have. Um, so, so I, I Super Bowl, whatever. Um, the, I thought the commercials, other than the Eli commercial, yeah. were actually generally quite lame. Now, what about the blackout? Uh, was that just like a technical malfunction? Apparently, it was a technical malfunction. Because somebody said, you know, how great would it be if somebody actually spent the right. money it would take just to run, you know. Or like the last two seconds time. said, like, you know, there goes X number of dollars. I mean, E-Trade did this a, like 10 years ago, right? We just wasted X number of millions yeah. of dollars on this yeah, ad. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, you know, I thought the, the, the ad I liked the most was the trailer for Solo, A Star yeah, Wars Story. Yeah, okay, so I'm so glad we came to that. Um, Let's talk about what we saw there. <laughs> did did we see the Kessel run? I think we're supposed. I think, to, I think that, one of those that, that the spiraling Kessel. thing. Uh, 
there was some kind of tube-like structure that the Star Destroyer is moving through. Yep. Um, there was the, another... The fog. The Star Destroyer in yeah, the, in the, that, in which, the by the way, space fog. Uh, whatever else you want to say about the Disney era with Star Wars, they've done a good job of thinking of new sort of climactic, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the, just schemes like that just give you yeah. new backdrops. Yep. And that was a great visual. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I got one good look at young Han Solo. He yep. looked the part. He, yep. look, he looked like a guy that could grow into the 1970s Han Solo, which I liked. Um, but oh, also, got, I mean... Donald Glover as Lando. Lando. I mean, that's how's that? That's, that's, that's going to be, be great. so amazing. Okay, what about the fact that the Falcon looked real clean? And well, of course, it was brand and it had a paint job. It had like I know, a, I know, a white like, and blue paint job. Like, what, did they, what are they going to do later on to make it them? <laughs> well, it's, it's a space. It's a vacuum. I mean, think of how they're going to have to pound the crap out of the ship just to get it into condition. I mean, remember yeah. Rogue One, right? There were all these fantastic little sort of moments of Rogue One that set up things that happened in episode yeah, yeah, four, yeah, right? Yeah. Think of all the, you know, now, you know, for... Now they'll do the same thing here with the Falcon, yeah. With the Falcon and with Han and Lando's relationship. Like, yeah. the, the card game oh, where yeah, Han oh, famously wins and the then it, and Falcon. Some, and something goes on that's shady enough to where it's plausible for Lando to act super pissed when he first encounters right? the so, investment. You know, yeah. it's, it's going to be great. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pleased with what I saw there. Uh, Timberlake, Justin Timberlake. Oh, two thumbs up, no thumbs up, thumbs down. You're, this radio, you gotta quasi radio. You gotta you gotta articulate what you're doing there. Meh, meh. Um, you know, meh. I thought the dancing was good. Meh. I'm not sure about the uh, the Cabela's outfit he had on. What that was quite supposed to be. No, the outfit. I don't know about the outfit. You know, I, the Prince thing. I mean, you had I to. I thought that was a little. You like, had to recognize Prince somehow. It's Minnesota. I, I mean, yeah. It's, it's like you know, as you keep talking about, I love you. You know, Minneapolis, all that. Like, like how many people from Minneapolis are? There and yeah, it's a fair point. Um, I thought it was a little overdone. Yeah, um, yeah, that, that part. Although the purple thing, the 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 the, the Anka, right, with the the purple lighting yeah, outside. His was that okay? So was that just a superimposed visual on the camera shot, or did they somehow set up some crazy light system? I, I assume it was know. superimposed. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it was negative fifteen degrees, so no one was outside, so they could have done it. Now, someone online said that there is a quote from Prince from I know that he doesn't want to ever be he, part he of a holographic never, duet. Yeah, yeah. So apparently, Timberlake <laughs> and his people got permission from Prince's estate. All right, well, that was smart. Unlike Dodge and MLK, but that's a separate issue. Yeah, yeah. Well. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, you know, I guess maybe public domain for the, the images and voices of both of them for their public performances. Yeah. I don't know. But hey, Mike Cernovich said on Twitter that the reason why it was a great Super Bowl was because President Trump was making America great again. Is, is that the, right? Well, the, we have President Trump to thank for a great Super Bowl. Oh, can't think of the stock market anymore, so I guess it's going to have to be the Super Bowl. Um, this is me clapping. Steve's not clapping, and we know that is trouble. <laughs> All right. I think we've run out of a senseless thing. Follow Bobby at Bobby Chesney on Twitter. Follow me at Steve underscore Vladek. Follow the podcast at NSL Podcast. And tell spread your, the word, yeah. Yeah, tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell your fellow traders, um, and, and, you know, take that for whatever you will. Uh, have a good week. Stay safe out there. Adios.